0: New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, welcome medical doctor Yasmeen S. Ali to the show. Dr. Ali is a cardiologist and writer across various genres. Her upcoming book will be released in 2023, and it is titled Walk Through Fire, The Train Disaster That Changed America, which is about the Waverly Train Disaster of 1978. It remains one of the most gruesome train explosions of the 20th century, and all of it happened in her hometown in Tennessee. In the field of medicine, Ali has published widely in peer-reviewed journals and is a former president of Vanderbilt's History of Medicine Society. When did you start prepping for your book, and when is its official release date?
1: Well, first of all, Nathan, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here and to talk about Walk Through Fire, which I started researching and writing in 2011. So I've been working on this book for nearly a dozen years now, and I'm so excited that it will finally be released on February 21st, 2023, to coincide with the 45th anniversary of the Waverly train disaster.
0: You mentioned that it happened in your hometown. How did you come to find out about the Waverly train disaster and how did it affect you?
1: Oh, everyone in Waverly knows about the Waverly train disaster. It's one of those things that you grow up hearing and learning about. And in fact, still to this day, when someone in the region asks where I'm from and I tell them Waverly, there will be people who say, oh, you know, there was a major train disaster there. I remember that and so on. But personally, I grew up hearing some of the inside stories that most people didn't know about when it came to the work of the first responders in the immediate moments of that disaster, because my own parents, Drs. Supay and Maysoon Ali, were the physicians on call for the emergency department at the small community hospital in Waverly, Nautilus Memorial Hospital at the time, which was three minutes from the train derailment site. So just so your listeners know, on the night of, Feb- of Wednesday, February 22nd, 1978, a 96-car L&N freight train derailed in the center of Waverly, Tennessee. And among the 23 wrecked cars were two 30,000-gallon tankers full of liquid propane. Two days later, at 2.55 p.m. on the afternoon of Friday, February 24th, 1978, one of the propane tankers exploded during the cleanup efforts, and the explosion took 16 lives and all of Waverly's new town section with it. More than 200 people were injured. So those are the statistics. But the Waverly train disaster was so much more than that, and that's what my book is about.
0: And what about FEMA? Why is FEMA so integral to your book? And When we think of FEMA, normally something like hurricane relief comes to mind. But what about train disasters like Waverly? Um, Why was FEMA created and, and why? Again,
1: Well, two business days after the train explosion in Waverly, the National Governors Association released their recommendation for the establishment of a centralized federal agency for emergency management. And as I highlight in the book, up until then, disaster response was carried out by a chaotic hodgepodge of state and local agencies and civil defense forces, and that's what was available on the ground for the management of the train derailment in Waverly. However, even prior to Waverly, the 1970s had witnessed a rise in the number of disasters resulting in loss of life and significant property damage. So calls for better emergency response training and coordination grew louder until in the latter part of the decade, the need could no longer be ignored. So I think it's ironic that one of the primary events in Waverly that finally catalyzed the formation of FEMA began in a way that hindsight might consider entirely appropriate with a freight train. So as far as the date of FEMA's creation That occurred just over a year after the Waverly train disaster on March 31st, 1979, when President Jimmy Carter issued an executive order that, in effect, officially created FEMA. And then the agency's establishment date was the very next day, April 1st, 1979. And over the course of time, a number of disaster management functions got transferred to FEMA, such as the emergency broadcast system, flood insurance, federal disaster insurance, federal preparedness, and the like. There's a rich history there, which I go into in the book, but suffice it to say that over several decades, FEMA finally became the agency we know it as today with one mission statement, quote, to help people before, during, and after disasters. And that has included everything from floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, and earthquakes, to water contamination, Ebola, Zika, and COVID-19. Things that people might not necessarily associate with FEMA, but are absolutely part of disaster management. FEMA is there.
0: And you use firsthand accounts of the event. Can you describe what your process was for interviewing and getting primary sources?
1: Yeah, I think this was one of the things that lent uniqueness to this book. I am from Waverly. I grew up there. It's my hometown. And it's a small town. So I knew personally nearly all the people I interviewed, and they knew me. And I have to give a shout out to Ms. Carolyn Tucker, my father's scrub nurse who is in the book, for becoming my de facto research assist- assistant and putting me in touch with so many of the people I interviewed. She would call people up, people she knew had played a major role in the disaster response, and say, Hey, Yasmin Ali is writing a book on the train disaster. Would you talk to her? And then for a couple of the interviewees, those came from interacting with readers of my newsletter. One of my newsletter readers, Mr. Zach Clayton, whose story is also in the book, reached out to me with information about the disaster, and I realized that his perspective would be a great add to the book. So I asked him, and he agreed to be interviewed, and he also put me in touch with Mr. Tim Barnett, whose story I was also incredibly fortunate enough to obtain for the book, as I think it adds a very powerful point of view. And a note about Tim, I interviewed him less than a month before my manuscript was due to my publisher. That was when Zach put me in touch with him. So that was this past March, and it was just such an incredible story, doubly so because on the eve of Thanksgiving just a couple of weeks ago, I received news that he had passed away quite unexpectedly. So having that story in the book is extra special to me. Um, As for interviewing techniques, I use open-ended questions, a technique I actually learned in medical school because it's also the best way to elicit a thorough medical history from a patient. So you don't begin by asking yes or no questions or by presuming you know the answers. Rather, you start broadly. And then, and this is really important, just listen. So for instance, I would begin by asking, what do you remember about the disaster? Just a very broad question and go from there. And listen, and one thing will lead you to another. So listen empathetically, listen carefully, and take all the time that you and your interview need.
0: And outside of the policies that we may or may not know of, um, can you enlighten the audience about some of the policies that were enacted to deal with disasters like this? One that comes to mind is the Staggers Rail Act.
1: Sure. So there were a number of changes on the national level that came about as a result of the Waverly train disaster. Immediately following the disaster in March 1978, the Federal Railroad Administration, or FRA, used its emergency powers to issue an order to remove high carbon cast steel wheels from service because of the findings that we may go into later regarding the cracked wheel that caused the derailment in the first place. Then, a year after the disaster, manufacturing standards for railroad wheels also changed across the board. By the end of 1979, the FRA had released a full set of railroad freight car safety standards, and these included yet more qualifications to be met by freight car wheels, as well as criteria for other components of the wheel trucks, like defective axles and bearings. And there were a number of other specifications laid out as well, all having to do with the mechanical standards that had to be met by the various components of a freight train, which are very important to its operation, like couplers, for example. These are the metal um, pieces that link the train cars together, cushioning devices, the labeling of tank cars carrying hazardous materials. And there were also many changes to how hazardous materials themselves were to be handled and transported and how hazardous waste should be handled. And then, of course, as you've touched upon, there was the passage of the Stagger's Rail Act on October 14th, 1980, which really was landmark legislation when it came to deregulating the railroads in a way that allowed for safety standards to be fully implemented while improving efficiency. So this was considered a rare win-win for all involved, for the carriers, the shippers, as well as the general public, and, and as well as the railroad companies themselves. Because prior to this, nine of the nation's rail carriers were in bankruptcy, which resulted in continually deferring maintenance and leading to dangerous track conditions, which allowed derailments like the one in Waverly to become commonplace. But the Staggers Rail Act had the effect of allowing the railroads to improve their financial returns such that they would then have the revenue available to improve their tracks and meet the new safety standards. So there were a lot of important changes to come out of the Waverly train disaster, including on the regional and local level, and, and I go into those in the book as well. And
0: ultimately, who was to blame for the Waverly train mishap? Would you say that it was personnel or was it hardware?
1: Well, the short answer is both. As I say in the book, a disaster of this magnitude doesn't happen as the result of a single factor. But rather as a cataclysmic event at the end of an accumulation of errors and lapses in judgment. In the case of the Waverly train disaster, these mishaps included poorly maintained railroad tracks. As I mentioned before, this was a problem throughout the nation at the time, lax or absent inspections of the components of freight trains, obsolete manufacturing standards for train wheels and for tankers carrying hazardous materials, but on a granular level, the National Transportation Safety Board found that a cracked wheel on a gondola car carrying railroad cross ties was the cause of the derailment in Waverly. And how that happened is an interesting story unto itself, because the night of February 22nd, uh, 1978, when the LNN train left Nashville at 6.32 p.m., it consisted of three locomotives, 92 cars, and a caboose. At Colesburg, Tennessee, 39 and a half miles north of Nashville, one car was taken out of the train, and five others were added. One of these was the gondola car, known as car number 17. The train departed Colesburg without its brakes being properly tested, and that was a violation of federal regulations. So because of that, the handbrake on the rear wheel of that gondola car, car number 17, was left on. The handbrake was on, and the heat and the friction that built up as the train made its way toward Waverly caused that wheel to crack all the way through its rim, plate, and hub, which loosened the wheel from its axle, caused it to move inward. And then when that fractured wheel hit the switch in the tracks at Richland Crossing in Waverly, where only properly aligned wheels should be able to go through, it pulled its own car, the gondola, over on its side and derailed the 22 cars behind it. And two of those derailed cars were 30,000 gallon tank cars full of liquid propane. Now, how one of those tank, cards came, tank cars came to explode two days later and how so many people were killed and injured was the result of another series of errors, which I'll let your listeners read about in the book.
0: Can you tell us again how many casualties there were? And then also, what was the extent of people's injuries from people that were either maimed or badly hurt in the disaster?
1: Yes, 16 people were killed, five of them instantly, and the rest died of their injuries um, over the course of the next two months. And then more than 200 were injured um, total from the disaster. And what more
0: is there to know about the emergency room, especially since you and your parents were, are, and were medical doctors?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, my parents were part of the medical staff at Nautilus Memorial Hospital in, Ma- in Waverly. And my mother, Dr. Maysoon Ali, who is an internist and gastroenterologist, was on call for the emergency room, the ER, that day. My father, Dr. Ali uh, pronounced as Ali for most who know him, was the only surgeon for miles around, and he had trained as a trauma surgeon at Howard University Hospital in Washington, D.C. So my mother called him immediately when she was informed of the explosion and saw the severely burned patients begin pouring in. And the other doctors on staff, Dr. Joe McClure in particular, is also featured in the book because he was one of the hospital's original physicians. They all came as well. And that ER, you're asking about the ER, it consisted of only two tiny rooms, about seven by 10 feet for the smaller room and eight or nine by 10 feet for the larger room. So the entire ER consisted of 160 square feet at most. And by every account, it was absolute bedlam. The power was out because of the explosion. And the hospital's generator had yet to kick in. So the medical staff and the patients were in the dark. The doctors and nurses were using flashlights to see the patients and to see what they were doing. And it seemed like half the town was crowded in there, either injured or trying to help or looking for their loved ones. And so my father got up on a gurney in the hallway and announced very loudly but calmly that he was in charge. And this story is in the book, but basically he managed to get things under control and initiated a very organized system of triage to determine which patients would need to be flown out and how to get the army medevac helicopters there from nearby Fort Campbell to fly them out and which patients needed to go on ambulances and what they needed to be stabilized before sending them out and who could stay at Nautilus Hospital and be operated on and so on and so forth. But what was also incredible was how both the medical staff and the first responders on the scene, firefighters, police, ambulance drivers, all came together in that tiny two-room ER to save as many lives as they did. In fact, not a single living patient died while in their care. And I think that's truly remarkable.
0: Some interesting figures come up. What about people like Frank Craver? Can you tell us more?
1: Yeah. Mr. Frank Craver is one of the people whose stories are told in detail in my book, and he is quite integral to this story because he was the first firefighter on the scene the night the train derailed, and one of the few who lived to tell me about it so many years later. He is also the survivor who suffered the most extensive burns. I think it's fair to say that no one except maybe himself. And I think his incredibly upbeat and determined attitude is a major part of this. But no one else expected him to survive. And he surprised them all. He really beat the odds. His story just may be the most miraculous one in the book.
0: As for injuries, what things were the doctors having to fix outside of skin grafts for burns? And then also, if you could um relay how uh, the medical administration of anesthesia um, and other procedures went on that day?
1: Well, so if I may, I think it's important to understand the background of some of the physicians involved, um, and in particular... My father went to medical school and did his surgical training at D.C. General Hospital on the Howard University Surgical Service in the 1960s. And that training was grueling, and the surgical experience was quite diverse. And he trained in general surgery, which means doing nearly everything that didn't require a subspecialist. And in the 1960s, they didn't have all the surgical subspecialties we have today anyway. So he treated everything from gallstones to gunshot wounds, C-sections, He did chest trauma, burn surgeries, stabbings, motor vehicle accidents, cancer surgeries, and so much else. And he was also drafted because of the Vietnam War and assigned to the Army under the Berry Plan, which allowed physicians in needed specialties like surgery to complete their training. So he sought out extra training in chest and trauma surgery, and he was also trained by the Army on how to operate in a theater of war, in a mass unit, and the like. So when he came to Waverly, He was already a very well-trained and seasoned surgeon and the only one of the medical staff really to have formal multiple casualty training as would be needed in response to a disaster. So when the burn patients started pouring in, the physicians had to find a way to get fluid into these patients because that is one of the most important parts of the acute response to dealing with... um, severe burn trauma. And that's fluid resuscitation. So they had to find ways to access the veins and get IVs into into the veins. And this was not easy because um, the patients were so severely burned, it was hard. You couldn't see the veins through their skin. So you really had to know your anatomy. And a surgeon like my dad did know that, and he was able to help the family medicine physicians who were trying to access IVs sometimes in people's ankles. Like in Frank Craver, that was the only place they could find a place for an IV was his ankle. And um, and then my dad went around putting in IVs in the subclavian uh, vein, which is right below the collarbone. And it's a really hard spot to stick. But he remembers later, I mean, saying, he said he couldn't believe that he didn't miss a single one. And and he told me just uh, maybe a month ago that he really believes um, there was there were other hands guiding his that day, put it that way. Now, you asked about burn injuries, and I do go into some detail about standard of care for their treatment in the book in a way that is in layman's terms. But um, skin grafts are important eventually for serious burns. But what's most important in the acute phase, as I mentioned before, is to replenish those lost fluids. And to prevent infection. And surgically, to prevent infection, a procedure known as debridement may be required, which is removing the dead, burned skin from the affected areas so infections can't set in. And uh, my dad did six major debridement operations with his team that Friday night of the explosion. They operated all night to give those patients their best chance at recovery.
0: Is Nautilus Memorial Hospital still up and running?
1: Yes, though under a different name. The hospital ownership has changed hands a number of times since the disaster, and I go into the reasons for that in the book, too. Um, It's actually part of a broader problem facing our nation, which is the struggle of rural hospitals to survive. But the current name of the hospital in Waverly is Ascension St. Thomas Three Rivers,
0: And how did the city of Waverly recover from the event, both socially and technically?
1: Yeah, well, Waverly as a community has shown a remarkable resilience over the years, I think. And although the new town section that was destroyed in the explosion was never rebuilt in the same way, um, Waverly business owners found new sites and outlets for their businesses eventually. And socially, socially, Commemorating the events of the train disaster and memorializing the lives lost has always been of major importance in Waverly. So, on the one year anniversary of the train explosion, for example, Buddy Frazier, whom readers will also meet in the book, he was a police officer at the time of the disaster. And actually, he was the very first person on the scene of the derailment, even before. Frank Craver arrived. So Buddy Frazier and several others helped set up a memorial and dedicated a monument at the site of the derailment one year later. And that was really a way to honor those who had given their lives uh, as first responders, you know, and the people who were still injured and still recovering from their injuries were able to attend that memorial. And I, I think that really helped give some closure and put people on a path to healing. And Buddy Frazier is now the mayor of Waverly, and he has pledged that as long as he is around, there will always be a fresh wreath of flowers at that monument. So then on the 25th anniversary of the disaster, while Buddy was city manager, he and city officials dedicated a red l caboose adjacent to the monument at the site of the disaster, and they opened it to the public as the Waverly Train Explosion Memorial Museum. And that has gotten visitors from all over the world since it's been open. Um, and so I think that's been a way to keep the, the lessons learned from the disaster alive.
0: And the town of Waverly is named after what fictional work? And believe it's Walter Scott, who dedicated the name?
1: Yeah, so the man who established the town of Waverly was a local lawyer named Stephen Pavitt, and he was a fan of the Scottish author and historian Sir Walter Scott, and so he named the town after Scott's popular Waverly novels, many of which, like Rob Roy and Ivanhoe, your listeners will have heard of because they went on to become well-known classics. So that's how Waverly got its name, although with a slightly different spelling. The town is spelled W-A-V-E-R-L-Y, while Sir Walter Scott's spelling of Waverly had an extra E between the L and the Y. So there you go.
0: You write also about the history of the Civil War. Why and in what ways was it a part of the history of rail in the city?
1: Oh, that is a long story that I think is best left to the book. But I will just say that the Civil War and the need for a safe and efficient way to reach the Tennessee River is the reason there is a railroad running through Waverly in the first place. And that railroad is still there and operating today. There's a very deep connection there with Civil War history. And I go into it in my book chapter titled, From the River to the Rail, Civil war events surrounding that railroad even influenced Sherman's march to the sea. But yeah, I won't spoil that story for your readers, uh, for your listeners. I will leave it to the book. Rivers, creeks,
0: and streams that are in and around different Tennessee districts make it into your book. Can you talk about why maybe the history of water is also important? And um, also tell us about maybe some of the bad water experiences related to a disaster like the train.
1: Yeah, that's important. Um, Well, as I mentioned, the need for the Union Army to have access to the Tennessee River during the Civil War is the reason there is a railroad going through Waverly in the first place. And as I've also written in the book, Tennessee is a land of rivers so they're always going to play an important role in the history of the state and of its cities and towns. Waverly is near Three Rivers. That's how Three Rivers became part of the current name for the hospital there, and those three rivers are the Tennessee River, the Duck River, and the Buffalo River. Those rivers have tributaries, major creeks and streams that flow into them, and in Waverly, the major tributary, excuse me, tributary of the Tennessee River is Trace Creek, named after the Natchez Trace, which is the historic forest trail created and used by Native Americans for centuries, and now extending from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi. So you can see that the rivers and their streams are an important part of sense of place and connected to the history of the region. For the history of Waverly, Trace Creek did play a minor role during the train disaster, and and readers will find out about that in the book. But more recently, last August, Trace Creek played a major role in altering the city's history forever, when it flooded nearly the entire town after almost 21 inches of rain fell in areas of Humphreys County within a 24-hour period. I also talk about this in the book, but to give you an idea, Trace Creek winds all the way through the city of Waverly, and it was reported to have risen by one foot every 30 seconds reaching four feet within two minutes and leaving almost no time for victims to evacuate. 20 lives were lost in that flood last August, more than in the train disaster. And much of Waverly's infrastructure, including its schools, businesses, city works, and over 500 homes were completely devastated. So yeah, water plays a very important role in the history of Waverly.
0: Do you want to talk more or give us more information about the highways that are in and around Waverly?
1: Well, U.S. Highway 70 is the east to west highway that goes through Waverly. And Tennessee State Highway 13 is the north to south south highway. And about a minute from where the two meet is where most of the action of the book takes place. Also, Highway 70 has special significance in the history of Tennessee and the history of the railroad. State Route 1, also known as the Memphis to Bristol Highway, spans the length of Tennessee. It rises from the flat banks of the Mississippi River in the state's southwest corner to the ear-popping heights of the Appalachians in its northeast corner. It's over 500 miles long, and it's a beautifully scenic route for most of its length. It becomes the main street of many of the towns and cities through which it travels. And in 1978, Waverly was one of these. And and here's the connection. Approximately two-thirds of State Route 1 through Tennessee runs concomitantly with U.S. Highway 70. So the State Route came first, and then the U.S. Highway system was built beside it or along it. And alongside that highway, visible for much of its length, runs the railroad. So that's the connection there.
0: And what about Dr. Jerry Francisco? Why did he get so much attention? Um, Was it because he was doing autopsies for people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Elvis? Or was it something else? This is
1: another fascinating story. Uh, One of the many surprise connections I uncovered while writing and researching this book. Dr. Francisco was the state medical examiner at the time of the disaster. And he and his team came to Waverly to aid with the identification of those who were killed instantly when the propane tank exploded. But 10 years earlier, he had performed the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's autopsy when Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. And six months before he arrived in Waverly to provide his assistance in the wake of the disaster, he had overseen the autopsy on Elvis Presley and unleashed years of controversy by refusing to make the autopsy report public. This led to the long-standing rumors that Elvis was still alive. You know, the king lives on, that sort of thing. And there was a lot of controversy also for those who did believe that the king was dead over the manner in which he died, how and why he overdosed, where he got the drugs. And the refusal by Dr. Francisco to release the autopsy report on Elvis just fueled all of that. So that was just six months before he came to Waverly to help with the the disaster.
0: The gondola in car 17 at the time of derailment, it was cited by the NTSB, but are there other reports that stand out to you or even in that report, is there something in that report that you want to mention? And there were were there any revisions later on um, related to the accident?
1: Well, no revisions that I'm aware of, but what stands out from the NTSB report actually was the one positive thing in the entire report. And so there was only one mention of unconditional praise in that report. And this was given to Nautilus Memorial Hospital and to the town of Waverly for their joint disaster plan, which, in the NTSB's words, provided excellent care for the public following the accident. So the NTSB concluded that it was the quick implementation of the hospital's emergency plan, the triage of the injured, which we discussed earlier, and that well coordinated effort by regional military units, the Army medevac helicopters from Fort Campbell, all working together. This all worked to minimize loss of life. And that was a shout out from the NTSB for the work done by the first responders and the medical staff in Waverly. And you know, within an hour of the explosion, 40 patients were triaged and stabilized in that tiny two-room Nautilus emergency room. 98 of the hospitals, 105 employees responded to the activation of their disaster plan. And 90 minutes after the explosion, 49 ambulances from 30 surrounding counties were streaming into Waverly in response to the town's May Day calls. So I think it's pretty incredible the efforts that all came together in the region uh, to help to help one another at a time of terrible crisis. And to me, that's what continues to stand out. Really, for me, that is the essence of this whole story and the core of what I wanted to convey with this book.
0: In what ways does Hurricane Katrina have things that relate to the Waverly train disaster?
1: Yeah, well, you know, you really can't talk about modern-day FEMA history without also talking about Hurricane Katrina. No institution is infallible. And FEMA is no exception. The absolute tragedy of mismanagement in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and its devastation of New Orleans is perhaps the most extreme example of failure in the agency to meet the urgent and emergent needs of the victims of disaster. But I think what that event with Hurricane Katrina also illustrates was how FEMA as an agency can be reformed. In response to the demands of the American public and by Congress. Because as a result of the debacle with Katrina, Congress passed the Post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act of 2006, which reorganized FEMA yet again, making it an independent agency once more with a director who would report to the Secretary of Homeland Security. And very importantly, The Post-Katrina Act prohibited the Secretary of Homeland Security from enacting policies that would reduce FEMA's capabilities or transfer any assets or functions away from FEMA. So FEMA was basically, by law, going to be allowed to do its job with its full capabilities and not be stripped of those capabilities. The Post-Katrina Act is also what redefined FEMA's mission to the one that it has today, which, as I said before, is to help people before, during, and after disasters. And that expands to all disasters across our nation.
0: Are there images you want to highlight that are in the book?
1: The book contains more than 20 photos related to the disaster. And for me, there are really three that stand out in particular as Quite haunting. One is a photo of several members of Waverly's all-volunteer fire department standing together, smiling and talking with a couple of members from the LNN cleanup crew just moments before the explosion. And so moments later, every single one of the people in that picture was either dead or seriously injured. So that's pretty sobering. And similarly, there's a picture in the book of Waverly's chief of police at the time, Guy Barnett, who was really a beloved figure in Waverly. And in the picture, he's looking over some of the wreckage from the derailment. And that picture was also taken just minutes before the explosion. And Guy Barnett died two days later from the injuries he sustained. Then finally, there's, I think, a pretty amazing picture of Cooter Bowen, one of the first responders, running past Guy Barnett's damaged patrol car. The whole area around him is on fire, and he's running to help and transport more of the injured to the hospital. And when you look closely at that picture, you can see Frank Craver's shoes beside Guy Barnett's patrol car and Mr. Craver's clothes behind the patrol car. So Frank Craver was literally blown out of his shoes by the explosion. And he remembers that and, and here's the photo evidence. So I think that's pretty incredible too.
0: Aside from your book, are there documentaries or any other places that people can go to learn about Waverly's train disaster incident, movies, anything?
1: Well, you can find the occasional article on the internet and some newsreels if you really hunt for them. But by and large, no. And That's exactly why I decided I must write this book, because it's the first full-length publicly available account of the history of the train disaster from beginning to end. And it's, importantly to me, one that focuses on the people, the people who were involved, not just the statistics, those who were right there on the front lines, minute by minute. There's never been another telling of the Waverly train disaster like this. And it's the first account to also tie in all the historical connections we've been talking about, like the creation of FEMA, like Civil War history, things like that.
0: And what are you working on next? Um, How do you plan to maybe do things related to medicine and history in the future?
1: Well, (laughs) that's a great question. And actually, my next book is a work of fiction, a novel titled The View from the Cliffs, which is a medical drama with this tagline, three physicians, three continents, two decades, one love story. And for history buffs, it's actually got quite a bit of heavily researched history in it too. So I hope to have it published by this time next year.
0: And for the audience and anyone who's interested, how can they get into contact with you? Um, How can they learn more about your medical practice, your research, your novel, anything else that you have um, in person?
1: Yeah, they can find me through my website, yasminalimd.com. That's Y-A-S-M-I-N-E-A-L-I-M-D.com. They can contact me there, also sign up for my newsletters, or people can find me on LinkedIn by searching for Yasmin S. M M.D.
0: And do you have final thoughts?
1: Yes, I do want to say it struck me recently that the story of the Waverly train disaster is really one about the triumph of community over chaos and how resilient we can be when we all come together. I think that's the greatest lesson for the present day.
0: This has been an interview with Yasmin S. Ali and her book, Walk Through Fire The Train Disaster That Changed America. I'm your host, Nathan Moore. And to get more episodes about history, please tune in to the New Books Network on all of our streaming platforms for updates and at the website, newbooksnetwork.com.